This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we are here to talk about whatever is happening with the global coronavirus pandemic. Evidence growing. The virus outbreak in the U.S. is much larger than we know. There could be hundreds of thousands of people who got infected and didn't even know what it was, or they got false negative test results. There was a lack of testing, which kept us from having a better idea of the spread. So how widespread is this? And a lawsuit filed against California's governor over, ready for this, singing in the church. Is it a First Amendment violation or is it necessary to protect the public? More than a million people filed for new unemployment benefits last week shows the economy is nowhere near recovering. And small businesses are struggling to hang on right now. We hear from one owner whose connection to the community is keeping him afloat. Let's start with the scope of the pandemic here in the U.S. Dr. Donna Hansel chairs the pathology department at the Oregon Health and Science University's School of Medicine. Doctor, what's the consensus, if we have one, about how many people in the country probably had this already but didn't get that email that said, yes, you're positive? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I know that there's been a lot of work on this, and it's clear now that there's probably many more people who have been infected than we recognize. Uh, there's also concern that the virus may have been spreading long before we thought. Well, is the, is the problem with the, um, the quality of the testing is the, is the problem with the, the, the way the labs report it. I mean, we have tests for all kinds of diseases and we don't seem to have these issues, but we do, it seems, with the coronavirus. We keep hearing from doctors who say they've got patients who they know have coronavirus, but they test negative anyway. We have other people who are sick and tested positive, but then they don't test positive for antibodies. It seems to be all over the map. Yeah, I I agree. I I imagine how confusing this can be to people. Uh, There's actually a number of factors that weigh in on uh, sample reliability and testing. Uh, The testing that we do for the acute phase, so when someone, for example, has respiratory symptoms, is based on what's called a polymerase chain reaction or PCR. Uh, This is the test that you see everyone lining up to get. Uh, We typically see when When many patients are hospitalized, those tests do tend to be positive. Uh, We know that in many of those cases, there's a lot of virus present. It's called viral load. Uh, However, there's a lot of variation outside of that. So uh, we know when people are infected, you basically follow a bell-shaped curve with how much virus you produce. So early on and late in the infection, you may make very low levels of virus. And, you know, when you're at those two tails, the PCR test may not pick it up. Uh, there's a certain limit of virus you need to have for that test to be positive. So in that case, you may have people who are positive but are not detected by the PCR. And you'll notice that verbiage is used quite a bit. Uh, we also know that um, just the sample itself can vary day to day on patients. And some of that depends on how the sample is collected, how deep the swab has gone, how long the swab's been in. Uh, but we also know that people on a day-to-day uh, variance will produce different amounts of virus. So if it's two or five or ten times higher the amount of cases than we think we have, what does that mean in terms of how infectious this is, how deadly it is? 
Yeah. So, you know, in in some ways, um, having a lot more positive cases relative to what we know the death rate or what we anticipate the death rate has been from this actually may lower the overall death rate, meaning knowing that 10 times more people have had it but not have had, we haven't had 10 times more of a worse outcome um, is in some ways um, suggesting that perhaps uh, the overall percentage of um, poor outcomes in these patients may not be as bad as we think it was originally. Uh, But the problem is there's a lot of guesswork that goes into this, right? Uh, You know, we, we tested a little bit later into the course of this disease. It took a while to ramp up testing. We're still ramping up testing. And so until we get a handle on what those numbers really are, it's hard to predict um, what that means for outcomes in this country. Dr. Donna Hansel chairs the pathology department's Oregon Health and Science University's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. If you've ever been to church, then you know singing is a major part of it, but not right now in California. Governor Gavin Newsom has banned singing inside chapels. It's because the virus could spread among people singing in confined spaces. But that order has not gone over well with some churches. Three of them have now sued, challenging the ban. Their attorney, Jordan Seculo, with the American Center for Law and Justice. So, Jordan, does the concern that the virus could spread and create a public safety hazard override any First Amendment issues here, freedom of religion? That's not what's at issue in the court. What's at issue in the court is whether or not that would override the U.S. constitutional protections of religious liberty. And specifically because these two counties, these three churches are in two counties in the state of California, which did not fall under that July 13th order that shut down most indoor activities. In fact, most indoor activities in these two counties that uh, the churches are in, and why we filed in the Eastern District, the federal court there, uh, they're allowed to operate. And in fact, the only places where singing or chanting, which is, you know, other religious place of worship, the chanting in, in Judaism, there's a, a, a cantor that's a chanter, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church and other other religious uh, uh, practices, you have this, and you talked about the verses that reference it, but at a restaurant that's open, there's no singing or chanting ban. At an indoor protest, there's no singing or chanting ban in these counties. So there is a serious constitutional issue here. First, it's equal protection, which is a 14th Amendment issue. You cannot, the government and the state cannot just target uh, religious groups So they did that here by issuing those guidelines on July 1st that read, uh, places of worship must therefore discontinue singing and chanting activities. In fact, in Mendocino County, they actually went so far and said that if if it's violated, uh, you could face imprisonment or fines or both. Uh, And in Butte County, they've they've said that they're going to treat this as an an act of law. So this wasn't like a suggestion. Uh, This wasn't like a recommendation or a guideline. And, and just to point out to people, these are churches that are already following the social distancing guidelines, and it's up to them, we believe, to decide what is safe uh, uh, once they're following those social distancing guidelines, including the guidelines and social distancing with uh, the singing that they, uh, they may engage in or that the choir may engage in. In fact, they have been created even masks now uh, for singing, particularly for singing. So there's, a, there's the issue of equal protection. There's, of course, the free exercise of religion. There is the, uh, you've got the First Amendment uh, issue and uh, the Establishment Clause. The government really has no place in telling you, hey, you can be open for worship, 
but you can't worship this way. I guess, does the state just think that it ups the danger level, that the rules are in place, the social distancing, the mask wearing, to, to let a group gather, a group of a certain size, because we know that this can spread among groups. So at least you get to go to church, but you have to cut out the singing for a while. The singing won't be gone forever. Well, the problem with, with setting these precedents is who's to say what, what limits the government has. I mean, that, that's the problem. And we are not challenging social distancing, and we're not telling, uh, forcing churches to say they must open up and they must have singing. These are churches that feel like it is, it is their a relig- deeply held religious belief to sing. They have constitutionally protected rights. And I think California here, uh, there's, there's two options. One, when they wrote these, uh, these rules and this, this, what they called guidance, but then used the term must therefore discontinue singing and chanting activities, when they did that, that's very legal sounding. That's very order sounding. And then, of course, the counties taking that and putting it into a law enforcement function where these churches could then face penalty of law, whether that's even imprisonment. So I think that, again, they're practicing the social distancing requirements in their counties, the state has imposed. These are not counties uh, that have been uh, shut down the same way that most of counties in California have, to be honest. So they've been able to operate just like a lot of other uh, businesses, including non-essential employees, are allowed to go to work. Right, so, so Jordan, I mean, Jordan, are you saying, Jordan, are you saying then that the people attending these churches that you represent, that the people, the parishioners are wearing masks, the singers are wearing masks? Everybody is staying at least six feet apart from one another. Is that what you're saying? Uh, they're following all of the guidelines they must follow. We're right, not challenging no, any of those guidelines. No, no, no. But, but, but wait, wait, wait. So, so wait, I'm not, no, no, but stop. I'm, Jordan, I'm not stop. No, no, no. Stop for a second. But, the, but and they you know, also but are not stop. violating wait, stop, the law. Stop for a second. Uh, I'm not saying they are. What I'm asking is a simple question. Uh, are they doing the things that in the state of California we're being told we're supposed to be doing, which is to stay six feet apart and wearing a mask when you're in a situation where you can't maintain six feet of distance between you and somebody else who's not from your household. Those are the regulations yes, for this absolutely. thing. So absolutely. they're doing all These of that. churches are following those rules. Absolutely. And that's why they've been been able to continue to operate, and they're not challenging those rules. They're not saying we have a challenge to the limit of how many people can come and how we have to distance and, and, you know, whether it's 25% of how many we can hold or a hundred, whatever's less, even if we have a 5,000 seat church, um, uh, they're not challenging any of that. Uh, they're just saying that to say that you can't have any singing as part of the worship at all, uh, even when you're following all those guidelines and that only applies to places of worship in these counties, that's unconstitutional. You cannot do that as a state. The governor can't do it. The, the, the state health uh, commissioner can't do that, and the counties uh, do, should not have gone forward and said, we're going to you know, make this into an issue where we're going to arrest people. So we filed the complaint, and we're going to be filing uh, the temporary restraining order uh, early next week, probably on Monday, uh, with, uh, with the Eastern District. Jordan Seculo, attorney, executive director, the American Center for Law and Justice. Jordan, thanks. The economic slowdown doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Wall Street is still jittery. More than one million people applied for new jobless benefits again last week. Shutdown orders are still in effect in many parts of the country. Here to make sense of it, one of the regulars, our regulars, David Fiorenza, associate professor of practice at the Villanova School of Business, talks to KYW's Matt Leon about his concern that new unemployment claims remain over that million mark. 
Well, that does concern me because we have 17 weeks in a row where the jobless claims had been over 1 million. On the other side of it, we've had 14 weeks of jobless claims been decreasing, but that decrease is slowing down. So that shows me a couple of things that companies are able to make ends meet without calling everybody back to work. It also shows me that a lot of the states are being cautious. All of our industries from travel, transportation, I'm concerned about that, air travel, uh, even public transportation. I'm concerned about the fact that people are are not working the number of hours they used to work. And that's why we're still seeing the, the jobless claims at 1.3 million approximately. Now that enhanced federal unemployment, that 600 bucks a week that's been so important, that is set to end at the end of the month. And you are finally starting to hear uh, politicians talk about what happens next. And I've heard some people pushing for the idea of a payroll tax cut instead of continuing the unemployment. Uh, explain to us what a payroll tax cut is and how would that help in the moment we're in? Well, the, what's being discussed at the payroll tax cut means that it's at the federal level, not our state levels or not our local levels or not the city level, such as the wage tax. So a payroll tax cut could be either be two ways. It could be Social Security payroll tax, which I think they should never cut. They've done it once, and I thought that was wrong. Um, it, but the Trump administration a few years ago under his tax plan, he cut the federal tax. Okay, so that's a good thing. You get more in your paycheck, hopefully spending more or saving more or paying down debt. The bad news is there's less money for the government. Uh, A lot of a lot of key economists like Art Laffer, who's worked for the Reagan administration and other people say that if we cut the payroll tax, people will have more in their pockets. It'll stimulate the economy and that will bring our gross domestic product out of the negative into the positive. So I hope when they're talking about this payroll tax, it's not the Social Security tax is because we really do need those Social Security taxes to pay for those people who are on Social Security right now. And it seems to me that that would help people that are still working, but you're still going to have a lot of people that are out of work that can't take advantage of that, correct? That's right, especially with with claims being at approximately 1.3 million a week. And that's a lot of people, 1.3 million. It doesn't sound like it, but there's the fact that, that each week some people are coming off the claims and some are going back on. So if we had our our economy at full force, there probably would be no reason to have a tax cut, a payroll tax cut, or maybe even a business tax cut. But there's ways that have to be stimulated here to get the engine going, to start that dead battery, if you will. The Federal Reserve has done their part, and now it's time for the federal government to do their part. Now, a few months ago, the federal government did hand out those direct cash payments to everybody, $1,200 a person, $2,400 to a couple. Uh, and I saw a report that a lot of the households that got that money used it to pay down debt. And while that's obviously very good for individual households, it doesn't really stimulate the economy, does it? Not every sector of the economy. It's good for the fact that if you're paying down debt, you have a comfort level as an individual, as a family, that you're able to meet your obligations. It's a smart way of 
of looking at budgeting. It's a smart way of saying now I can maybe save more money. I think it's a, it's a way of saying you pay yourself first, mean, meaning you pay all your obligations. This happened during the recession of 2008 and nine when people looked at the economy and said, well, it's, it's contracting. We have higher unemployment. Let's start paying down some of our debt. That is a good thing for the individual, but two-thirds of our economy uh, is based on consumption. 30-year mortgage rate, I think it's under 3%, like 2.98. What's that doing to the refinance market, even in the midst of everything else? Well, that's a good thing. It's actually been stimulating the refinance market, which means that affects everybody from mortgage companies, bankers, title companies, attorneys, realtors, uh, anybody who's in, who's in the mortgage business, financial consultants. If you can refinance and save $100 a month, $200 a month, and take a look at what it costs to refinance, it may be well worth it. That is more money in your pocket. That's more money for other things, groceries, maybe start to save for college education, um, start to save for a new car. It's, or some people have even gone as so far as to take their 30-year mortgage and then drop it down to a 15-year mortgage because the rates are so low because people are getting smarter about the pandemic and wondering how long will this last? Will we have another pandemic? Will there be another crisis? We want to be able to save money. We want to be able to be comfortable. We want to be able to know that we can keep our homes, which is actually the American dream. We are seeing some retail sales numbers that are promising. I think a seven and a half increase, seven and a half percent increase last month. But these numbers would show that things are coming back. But how concerned are you that maybe we should look at these with a bit of an asterisk just because of the way the virus is soaring back and we're seeing a lot of these openings rolled back? Right. We're, we're actually seeing a little bit of both happening, Matt. We're seeing we're seeing good retail sales, but we're seeing them from the point of view where we had zero before of walk-in sales, and now they're operating at 25%, maybe 30%. Stores are fine, large stores, that is, like Nordstrom's and others are finding out uh, that they don't have to operate at 100%. They can take different sales associates and put them throughout different departments. They don't need 100% staff because the malls are not back at 100%. Even even the, the biggest of malls, King of Pressure Mall, and owned by Simon Property, they know this is a slow process. Some stores have closed, but yet they're still making some new leases on new stores that were opening up in the fall with the hopes that there's going to be a vaccine and the confidence in the American people will be when we get closer to Christmas that they'll be shopping a little bit more. Millions of people have been hit financially since the pandemic started, but one group arguably has been hit harder than everyone else, small business owners. Many don't have the cash on reserve to survive long shutdowns, not to mention issues they've had getting government loan money. But yet they are finding ways to survive. John Stageland owns Atlas Comics in Chicago. He talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about just how tough it's been. I have kind of this microscopic view. You know, I'm really an owner-operator. And the couple months off, you know, were difficult, but um, I was able to kind of survive through doing a crowdfunding campaign, which a lot of customers and people were very generous to us uh, during that. I sort of structured it as kind of a virtual sale, if you would, where you put in a certain amount of money and then after reopening, you would come in and be able to get, you know, if you pledged $100, you would get $125 worth of merchandise. So that kept money coming in. 
for us to pay bills and rent and so on. And it also gave the customer something. So a lot of people now are coming in and redeeming those those pledges. So it's, it's been very good for us. So is that where the loyalty that you've built up over years really comes back to help you when there's a challenge like this? Good customer service and the loyalty of your customers. It's absolutely so true. I mean, a lot of the customers that I have are multi-generational. They've been coming in for, frankly, decades and they have kids and they're, you know, passing on the love of collecting to those kids. And it's it's just been really kind of humbling to see the people rally around this because it is sort of, you know, it's almost like the neighborhood bar in a way that there's such long continuity that people uh, have been coming in for so long that they don't want to see it go away. So that, that was really helpful to us. Are you limited, unlike some other businesses, are you limited in what you could do online during the pandemic? I mean, I'm thinking if you're going to buy a comic book, you want to actually see it before you buy it. Yeah, in general, that's true. There is a big community of people who would rather buy in person than on eBay or on the other auction sites that uh, that operate. Uh, but we were able to do some things on eBay and, and, as I said, on those other auction sites and keep some money coming in. I also think people were guarding their money a little more tightly, as you might expect, during the pandemic while, you know, they might be laid off or furloughed or lost their jobs. So... I think the prices realized during that period were a little lower than they normally would be. But still, in a crisis like this, you have to take what you can get to keep going and stay healthy. Yeah, you just need cash, right? You were mentioning rent and and utilities, that sort of thing. At some point, you just need some cash flow to pay the bills. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, then, you know, once we're out of this, as we are now, I've been open for a little over a month again, and things are gradually coming back to normal. So... Now we can address that idea of like how far away are we from where we were before this all started and what do we knew what do we need to do to kind of get back to where we were. So we tell individuals all the time to have emergency funds. We talk about it on this show a lot. Businesses, it's exactly the same, have an emergency fund, but is there a way for you to plan for several months of a total shutdown? No, I th- I think you're right about that and and I have to say I was very lucky to to think that way, to have an emergency fund, you know, I deal in a lot of collectible comics and, you know, uh, I always have an emergency fund put away for if somebody brings in a great collection or, you know, if I broke my leg and I had to have somebody come in and pay them to work for a couple of weeks. So that money was helpful. But the idea of thinking ahead to the two or three or four months, or God forbid, if we have another lockdown, um, that's not as easy to predict for sure. Now, this is a segment specifically for entrepreneurs. What would you say to budding entrepreneurs out there, either encouragement or a lesson learned during this pandemic as a small business owner? Well, I, I would say this. For me, uh, being my own boss has been uh, a real gift in my life. If, if people are like-minded and want to be self-employed or they want to start a business, I I still encourage that heartily. I mean, America is still a great place to start a business, something unique and new. Uh, My piece of advice would probably be exactly what you're talking about, is to make sure that you think about the lean times ahead. Make sure you're prepared for a time when things aren't as great as you want them to be, because if you can get through that, then it's much more likely you'll be able to survive in the long term. Thanks so much. Really good insight. Good to talk with you. That is John Stageland. He is the owner of Atlas Comics. Many schools around the country will remain closed when the new school year starts in August and September. So parents who can afford it are getting together to create their own schools called micro schools.
The parents set up a classroom at a daycare or inside a home, and they hire someone, presumably a teacher, to teach the kids. Some of them say it's better than online learning, and the kids get the social interaction they need. Micro schools aren't cheap, however. Five families here in Los Angeles have spent more than $22,000 in just the last three months in order to create one. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. I, I hopped on the Atlas Comics Chicago website yeah. from a second ago. Their marquee outside, I wear the mask to protect the people closest to me. Batman. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah. if Batman wears one, yeah, we all can. All right, thanks for listening to us on the radio. Don't be a joker. App. Ah, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.